Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that in the word that is read, proclaimed, sung, and enacted in sacrament, that the living word made flesh will find a cradle within our hearts and lives. Amen. The presidential election of 2016 was over a year away, but the political debates were raging. One debate was about who should be allowed in our country. What about undocumented workers? What about the legal path to immigration? Should it grow wider or more restrictive? Should we build a wall? What about war refugees? There were during this debate hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees in bordering countries with the bulk of them in Germany and German resources were strained to meet their needs. Well, a friend and I were having a discussion about whether or not our country should help relieve the strain and bring some of those Syrian refugees from Germany to America. By the way, my friend gave me permission to talk about this conversation. One of us thought that this country should do so and do our part, and the other of us was worried that potential terrorists might be among those who were brought in. We were not arguing. We don't do that. We're friends. But it was a disagreement. And then the conversation took a wonderful, graceful turn. One of us said something like this. Let's forget policy for a moment. This is a massive humanitarian crisis. Those refugees have lost their homes. They've lost everything. And it's an enormous strain just to keep them fed and sheltered. What can we as Christians do right now? How can Second Presbyterian Church respond? And in the blink of an eye, we were on the same page. My friend was an elder at the time who served on the stewardship committee, which had just asked the session to set aside loose plate offerings for specific mission needs. And he proposed to the session that we communicate to you, to the congregation, the magnitude of the Syrian crisis, and that this congregation be given the opportunity to contribute to Syrian refugee relief with the next month's free plate offering. Side note, our church had just offered a seminar on immigration policy and 20 people came. That's enough people to just about the seminar. We learned a lot, but I would not call that a massive response. But given the opportunity to actually do something to help, the response of this congregation was massive. And then a few years later, the congregation had an opportunity to help with refugees at Massanetta. This time, not only with money, but with visits and donations. And of course, people who helped had different ideas about immigration and refugee policy, but our tradition of compassion carried us through. You know, often the church 
is wiser than its members. Think about that policy in light of the biblical book of Hebrews. Listen to the reading of the first two verses of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Sometimes, many times, the church is wiser than its members. I use the term church loosely to refer not only to a faith community, but also to that faith and tradition that feeds the community. So when the preacher of Hebrews preaches his sermon, he speaks not only to the Jewish Christians who make up his audience, but also to the faith and tradition of their ancestors, the faith and tradition of Judaism. And in this Jewish Christian community, there is a lot of deconstruction of Judaism going on. Some don't see their new Christian faith as a development. They see it as a rebellion and a new thing. And to justify what is already a growing schism between Jews and Christians, they are attracted to those who want to say that the old faith is just outdated, no longer relevant. The preacher of Hebrews does talk about fresh expressions of faith in God. In the book of Hebrews, he says, the judgment of the law has to give way at the end to the salvation of grace. He says the sacrifice of animals is no longer necessary. It's replaced by the sacrifice that was the life of Jesus. He said hired priests in the temple are no longer needed to address our sins, for we have Jesus, who is the great high priest. However, while the preacher is clearly a theologian of change, I do not see him as a deconstructionist. By chapters 11 and 12, we learn how much appreciation and respect he has for what has been passed on to them by the, to the Jewish community, to his Jewish Christians in his church. Everything that he wants to say about Jesus, he sees as a flowering of the ancient faith. In a way, he would like them to know that their faith of their ancestors was often wiser than their ancestors. I'm going to say that again. The faith of their ancestors was often wiser than their ancestors. His sermon hits a fever pitch by the time it gets to chapter 11. In chapter 11, he tells story after story of ancestors who could be deconstructed and dismissed for their flaws and failings. He tells of Abraham, who had some major fails in his life, like passing his wife off as his sister and abandoning one of his sons. But the preacher wants you to remember that when Abraham's story is fully told, it is a story about faith carrying Abraham to where he needed to go. He tells of Jacob, who brings blessings to his family, the family that he had earlier ripped off and took advantage of. He tells of Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who put her life at risk 
to save the lives of Jewish spies. The preacher tells a lot of stories like this because he wants his readers to carry forward the wisdom of the faith as they remember these sinners who in their own flawed way did so. And he wants the sinners of his community to do so as they follow Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 12, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, look at the cloud of witnesses who have gone before you. Like you, they messed up. They're not perfect. And if we wanted, we could let their sins cling so closely to their reputations to justify why maybe we should disown them and leave them behind. But don't do that. Because the faith that carried them despite their sins carries us. And in fact, when he speaks of sins that cling too closely, he's really not speaking to their sins, but to the sins of his Hebrew congregation. You see, they can just as easily parse what is wrong about themselves as they can about their Jewish forebears, and they can get so caught up in the journey of shame that they become paralyzed to do their part to be the next generation of God's witnesses. Look to Jesus, he says, who for the joy set before him endured this cross and he despised that shame. He despised the lasting stain of shame that can become so focused on how far we fall short that we feel too unworthy to move forward. Don't fall back into shame, he says but move forward as imperfect people who, like Abraham, Rahab, and Jacob, somehow make a witness despite their flaws and mistakes. A few weeks ago, Bill Lee and I were having lunch together at Montano's. We were planning our next session of the Bible in black and white. I talked about this passage and how it seems so often that a healthy congregation is so much wiser than its members. I'm preaching this sermon today because Bill strongly encouraged me to talk about this with you. Bill has a strong personality and is very persuasive. You see, Bill, as a Roanoke minister who has served in an African-American church in a distressed neighborhood for half a century, he's known many of the members of Second Presbyterian Church, and he knows our congregation. Now keep in mind that the purpose of the class was to help white folks and black folks consider the Bible, consider how it's seen differently from different cultural perspectives. Obviously, there's a lot to be learned both ways. Obviously, there's a lot we at Second Presbyterian have to learn about social and and racial and justice inequities and system problems that need to be addressed. We can be wiser about issues of race. But what this church looks like to Bill Lee is different from what some of us see. Let me tell you a little bit about how this church has looked from his perspective and why I suggest that the church is sometimes wiser than its members. Surely it would not be a shock to you that back in the pre-civil rights days, there were members of this congregation who were racist and did not hide it. We're not naive. But what about the church? While many white Southern churches of all mainline denominations 
had this enforced policy of segregation, this church never, ever closed its doors and never seriously considered it. Again, I'm sure some members back then would have liked the church to be all white, but the doors stayed open because sometimes the church is wiser than its members. There happened in Roanoke, as in many cities across the country, a decimation of neighborhoods. In Roanoke, families migrated from this southwest community to the suburbs, with many of our members moving to the new community of South Roanoke. And the makeup of the southwest community changed and housing values plummeted. In many cities where this happened, churches moved right along with their members. This included Presbyterian churches. A lot of Presbyterians, churches that moved, had first in their name because being the first Presbyterian church established in the city, their buildings were in the heart of downtown. First Nashville moved. First Ann Arbor moved. First Richmond moved. First Roanoke moved. And we can't judge all these churches' motives. I mean, sometimes moving can be for the simple reason of parking as more people drove to church than walked. But there were some places where race was a major factor. Dr. Edmonds, Dr. Hollingsworth, and Dr. Klein heard from members who thought that this church should move as well. Never happened. Never came close to happening. This church stayed right here because here is where we can best serve the needs of the whole city and region. Sometimes the church is wiser than its members. Other neighborhoods were decimated. The thriving black Gainesboro community was destroyed when eminent domain was used to place the I-581 corridor right through it. And when the Viscose plant shut down and there were no employers to replace it, the Southeast community went from being a strong blue collar community to being an impoverished one. Maybe individual members of this church didn't care what happened to those neighborhoods or didn't even know enough to be upset. Maybe some were involved in decisions that could have been made better. Certainly, there is history to be learned and issues of poverty and race to be better understood by those of us who do not live in those communities. But Bill has seen this church do more than possibly any other church in Roanoke to establish and support and expand ministries that not only seek to meet immediate needs, but also heal and restore the neighborhoods. An example, because of our Mission Bill campaign, which was referred to earlier, we have been given the right to name a large room in the new Presbyterian Community Center facility after it is constructed. The session decided to give this name to our room the Founders Room, in honor of Ben Sparks and Ted Edlick. Ben and Ted were two Presbyterian ministers who worked out of this congregation to create the center. They first worked out of a space in a building in what is now our Mountain Avenue parking lot. And then, over the years, this church provided countless board members and volunteers, plus many hundreds of thousands of dollars to fuel the center's efforts to not only meet needs, but restore the community that became decimated when the Viscose plant left. 
Now, no doubt, over the years, many members have been ignorant of the conditions of Southeast, and perhaps some thought of it as a neighborhood to be avoided except to drive through it. And we continue to have our opinions about how to address poverty, and I'm sure some of those opinions need a little education. But meanwhile, the church, which is often wiser than its members, keeps strongly supporting ministries that actually are working on the problems. I could keep going. There is now unintentional bias baked into housing and health care that I do not fully understand. There are local problems of opioid abuse and drug abuse, education issues, debates about the current state of our democracy. There is so much to be studied and learned, and our flaws and mistakes are going to show themselves as we learn about them. But Bill would tell us this. While studying and debating and thinking about issues, don't stop carrying forward what has been passed on to us here at this church. Keep building the habitat houses and give support to the potentially homeless with their needs. Keep supporting the health ministries out of the Loudoun Avenue Church and at the Horizons Health Clinic to help those who are underinsured and underserved. Keep being the church where when there is a Category 5 hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast or a tsunami that hits overseas or when a pandemic hits us, be the church that asks first the question, what can we do? And please, 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 he says, don't go backwards and undo what the greater wisdom of the church has passed on to us because the Roanoke region depends on us far more than we know. Don't let our individual sins, those we know and those we don't know, cling so closely that our generation skips making its own witness to compassion. I just see that as cheerleading because I see us doing that. I want us to imagine God knowing our inner thoughts. You know, it really is okay if we sound like a fool sometimes to God so long as we don't make a God of our foolishness. There is out there, and I think there is within this congregation, a faith and a tradition that will carry us as we become the next generation of those who do not let our sins cling so closely, but who continue to look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.